Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 2, 22 through 40. Jesus presented in the temple. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of jo Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary and his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There is also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The word of the Lord. All right. It is January 15th. So how many people have uh, broken their New Year's resolutions? Anyone? <laughs> Anyone want to admit already? <laughs> or, or four or five of them? Um, no, it is kind of interesting that we start uh, a new year, and often it, it's just become a tradition that that many people pick these things that they want to do different, you know, in the year ahead than in the year behind. Um, but, you know, just logically speaking, there's, there's one of two things, especially when we're talking about your relationship with Jesus, you're following him, there's one of two things that will happen in this year. Either you'll come back in a year from now and you will have grown closer to Jesus, following more closely behind him, seeking after him, or you will come to a year from now and you will be further away from him. You will come from a year from now and you'll find that maybe you've drifted away, uh, maybe you've even walking in a direction that is not uh, following him. Now the good news is neither of these options change how much God loves us. Right? We can rest in that. We can know that, that our own uh, duty, our own sense of seeking after him does not change the relationship in that way, but it does change the relationship, right? And, and this makes sense because all relationships are this way. There's, there's two options. You're going to be going uh, closer or you're going to be going further apart. You can't stand still in this kind of thing. You can't just coast for a year and there's, 
really no chance that, that you're going to just kind of not put in any effort, not, not try at all, and then magically, in a year from now, all of a sudden, you're just like really on track with God, and, you're, and you look back, and you're like, wow, I really followed him, and I seeked after him, and I, I listened to, uh, to what he had for me. It's just not how relationships work. And it's not how a relationship with God works. And as I've been kind of thinking about this and, and focusing on this, I've, um, maybe, maybe a lot of you don't know that uh, the sermon series, I mean, Jimily knows because she knows we're planning worship, but the sermon series that, that I plan at church that, that like on paper, I think I'm good through Advent next year. Uh, it's just kind of how it works. So, so I like plan way ahead, and then I like pray over all of it, and then I plan again because that was wrong, and then and then I pray on it again, right? And then and you kind of discern. And and what I've kind of discerned is that we need to focus this year ahead on seeking after God, at following God, at being disciples of Jesus. Not not so much the uh, do I understand the right things, but what does it mean to kind of walk this walk? What does it mean to to live as a disciple of Jesus in a world that, that is often complicated and often hard and, and makes that difficult and sometimes gives us easy answers to difficult questions and, and then says, oh, that's all, that, that's all that it means to be a Christian. It's just, you know, check these three things. And, and yet when we come to the Bible, when we come to God's word, and we come to looking at what does it mean to follow after Jesus, there seems to be a whole lot more going on. And, and a lot of it is being asked of us. Again, that doesn't affect God's relationship with us. You know, if, we're, if we are saved, we're, we're saved. But there is a lot kind of in this equation that it says in the Bible, you know, if you're going to follow after Jesus, it's probably going to look a lot like these things. So uh, the first series uh, in this, I don't know, series of sermon series, <laughs> whatever you want to say it, uh, Series number one, I'm calling After Christmas, and it's this attempt to, to look at the Christmas story, and it's really good, but, but what churches do all over our world is we focus so much in the season of Advent, we so focus so much in Christmas on, on Jesus being born, and that's right, and that's good, but what we kind of miss is that you get into January, and then you just go on to something totally different. But the story continues. It doesn't just end at, um, you know, Luke verse 21. And, you know, I mean, that's where when Linus was holding his little blanket and he was giving his little, that's where Linus ended. You know, the, the shepherds have come, the shepherds have now left, and they, and they go telling the good news, and, and he stops his little sermon. But uh, we're still in Luke chapter 2 <laughs> for the reading today. The story, the story continues, and, and so we're going to focus uh, a few weeks here on what happens between Jesus being born and Jesus' ministry starting. There's, there's four or five really important uh, pieces in the Bible of what happens. Jesus is young uh, in many of these. In this one, he's still an infant, uh, and then he gets uh, older as the stories go on, but it doesn't just go from, from Christmas to you know, he's being baptized by John the Baptist in the river. There's, uh, there's places, especially in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, that help fill in that gap. So uh, we're going to focus in that today. And, and I ask that we do it keeping one eye uh, looking backwards towards the birth of Jesus, that these are continuations of that story. Uh, and then, of course, 
as we read the Bible, it's, it's assumed uh, quite often uh, that we've read it before. That's just kind of a Bible study tip for you. So when Luke tells you things here, he assumes that this is probably the 15th time you've read it. So you know where the story's going, right? So you're not, you're not surprised when Mary finds out at the end of, of what was read for you that, that her life is going to be difficult and that Jesus' ministry is not going to be an easy one, right? That, that many people are going to accept him, but many people are going to reject him, right? So you have some context as you're reading it that you're, you kind of know where the story is going. You know that Mary is going to be one of those witnesses that is standing right there when her own son, Jesus, is crucified on the cross. We're able to kind of know that as we enter into the text. So again, one eye looking back towards Christmas, one eye looking towards uh, Jesus' ministry and and where the gospel is going, and we're going to try to look at these texts uh, in their own context here. So right here in Luke chapter 2, as as I mentioned, uh, right before this story, we have the shepherds, and they hear of the birth of Jesus, and they come, Uh, And they see him, and and they praise God, and then they go right away telling everyone what had happened, uh, what God was doing. It says that they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds very simply were called to do something. As, As they did that, they saw Jesus, and they went away from that experience sharing the good news of what God had done. And this theme is going to continue on here in Luke. So we're in Luke 2. Uh, We'll start in verse 22. I'm just going to kind of walk through it. So 22 through 24. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So we'll pause there. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here that we don't do. Um, When's the last time you brought a pair of doves to the temple? Uh, in Jerusalem, right? These are kind of foreign concepts as, as we look back into it, but it uh, would have been less foreign for them, but there's, there's something important going on here. So in the Old Testament law, it says what you need to do when a, when a baby is born, and there's kind of two parts of it. There's a part of it of what uh, needs to be done kind of on behalf of Jesus, particularly being a firstborn male uh, of his family, And then there's purification things that Mary undergoes, having just gone through childbirth. And they're both uh, kind of broken down uh, in the Old Testament, and this is a a good example of what is happening is right here. They're following it uh, kind of to the the letter of the law. They're doing exactly uh, what is expected of them. So in Exodus, um, so the law of of Jesus being the firstborn male, and they need to consecrate him to the Lord. This comes from Exodus 13, verse 2, and 13, verse 12, and we're not going to read it exactly, but it refers back to the Passover uh, story. So the people of God are in Egypt. 
Uh, God is going to free them from slavery in Egypt. And remember, there's all the plagues that come. And the very last plague is the plague of the firstborn, um, where there's uh, all the firstborn males of Egypt uh, die. And, and yet the spirit that comes and does that passes over, so they get this, this word Passover, passes over the Israelite families that are living in the land. And their firstborn sons uh, continue to live. And then as we get into Exodus 13, it, it talks about how because of that, whenever a firstborn male is born into a family, there's supposed to be this extra sacrifice that happens in recognition of Passover, um, kind of paying uh, a debt almost. Uh, and it's on behalf of the firstborn son. So we're told right here that Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to do that sacrifice. Now Mary herself is going to do a couple sacrifices too, and these uh, are actually from Leviticus 12, uh, 1 through 8, uh, where Mary, having given birth, um, it's, it's said that she needs to uh, then do you know, sacrifices on behalf of that. Giving birth is a very uh, important and sacred thing all the way through the Bible, and and it makes sense because in the beginning of the Bible, God creates life, and then how it talks about it is as life continues to be created, particularly through, through women uh, in this context, that something really important is happening, something uh, almost, almost God-ish <laughs> uh, is happening in the world, and, and it gets recognized uh, in, in important ways. But yet, in their worldview, how they look at it is, uh, and this will maybe make more sense of a lot of the Old Testament law, is that blood is your life force. And it's kind of, I mean, we can debate the uh, medical accuracy of that, but we do know if, if any animal doesn't have enough blood, what happens, right? I mean, and especially if that blood is lost. So if you, if you don't have enough blood, that, that they view it as the life is being drained. Right from that animal, and that's why you have so many animal sacrifices that seem very, very bloody and off-putting to modern audiences. As we read it, we're like, well, there's a lot going on with, with blood here. And part of that squeamishness is a squeamishness that actually goes back in time. There's, there's something also kind of disturbing to them, and it's because there's this life force that's here. But we also know, um, hopefully we're all aware, um, the birthing process is not without its own complications, right? So, so as uh, the woman in this scenario comes in contact with this, this blood and, and there's a lot going on there, that there's this purification that happens afterwards. And it just fits perfectly into their culture. It fits perfectly into their time of what's going on. But, but Mary also needs to bring a sacrifice to the temple. And it's just in recognition of that. It happens, uh, it's, it's outlined in Leviticus, it happens... Uh, some 30 days after childbirth takes place. Uh, she's supposed to do this. Now, in the law, in the Old Testament, at first it says she's supposed to bring a lamb without any blemish, a perfect lamb, and she's supposed to bring a separate offering of a dove. And there are for two different offerings that go to the temple at that moment. If you keep reading in Leviticus, there's this, this caveat that is entered in that says, but if you can't afford the lamb, Right? Even back then, they were aware that not everyone can afford... This is an expensive thing. 
And, and it's really only kind of the wealthy that could even do this sacrifice. So, so they have this problem. What does that mean? Does it mean that all the poor people now can't be purified in this way? Or, so right in the law, it says if you can't afford the lamb, that you can bring two doves instead of a lamb and a dove. And here we read that Mary brings the two doves or the two young pigeons. It's part of the reason that we know that Jesus did not grow up in a wealthy family. If Jesus grew up in a wealthy family, if that's what uh, his life was like, if that's what he was used to, then certainly here uh, the two young pigeons wouldn't have counted. It wouldn't have worked. It would need to have been the lamb and it would need to have been the pigeon, but uh, the gospel writer Luke, and as we read it, there's no uh, problem here. It just continues on you know, with the law that they brought uh, the two young pigeons here. Again, this whole thing is just so foreign to us. Uh, you all seem interested, but I, I worry that if I continue on like this for another, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, that you'll just glaze over. <laughs> I mean, the Old Testament law is, is fascinating in some ways, but it also is it's just so foreign to us, this, this idea of temple sacrifices and purification rituals and, and ancient laws, and it's just... Uh, it's, it's interesting, but why is it here? Why, why do they bring that? Why is that the next thing that is told about Jesus? You know, they don't tell us everything. This isn't, uh, these Gospels aren't the most thorough biographies of a historical figure. That's not even their goal. That's not what they're trying to accomplish. But yet, this, this story is placed here. And it's placed here, I, I think, for a couple important reasons. And the first one is that the gospel writer wants us to know that Jesus' family obeyed the law. That Jesus comes from the kind of family that, that does what's expected of them in the Old Testament law. And, and, and it tells us, actually, five times in this one passage that they did just that. It's repeated throughout it that that they followed the law, and that they did what was expected of them. And, and I think part of the reason is because later on, if you don't realize that part of who Jesus is, you might get confused on his message. Because later on, he says stuff that makes it sound like he's just kind of abolishing the law, that he's doing away with that, he's throwing that away, that he's, kind of, he's pushing back against the religious figures at his time so much that you might conclude in your head, maybe he was just raised that way. Maybe he just grew up in a house that didn't respect this stuff. Maybe he just grew up in a house that, that they didn't really care about the law, and therefore he's just kind of reflecting that forward. And, and here in the gospel, I think they want to be clear to say, no, that's not how Jesus grew up at all. He grew up in this house that followed the law, that did what was expected, that did what the law required of them, and, and yet... Because of that, because how much he was seeking after God and trying to honor God, then it resulted in how he did his ministry. It's kind of a foreign concept for us. You probably never thought of Jesus being raised as a rebel. Right? But he dies a rebel's death on a cross. That's, that's how he died. This was in the Roman world. He, he's a rebel uh, in their eyes, and he's a criminal and he dies a criminal's death on the cross. And here, I think Luke wants to say, don't be worried too much about following this Jesus 
who died this criminal's death. Don't, don't make that twist in your head and think, okay, now uh, I'm, I'm seeking after this, I don't know, this rebellious Jesus. <laughs> right? But, but yet Jesus is going to stand his ground and he's going to say, no, this is not right. How you're doing this and in the ways that particularly the vulnerable people are being taken advantage of, that's where Jesus really stands his ground. And he says, this, this is not okay. This is not what it means to follow the law. This is not what it means to, uh, to live with other people. Verse 25. Now there is a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who is righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus um, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign God, you have promised, or as you have promised, you, have now dis- you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of my heart will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So here we have kind of the second scene of of this short story here. We have Mary and Joseph, they've taken Jesus, they've they've done the sacrifice, and now this this guy Simeon shows up, and, and we hear that he's righteous and that he's devout, uh, meaning he, he follows after God, that he follows the law, that, that he's there. And um, in, Luke's, in Luke's gospel, we don't often think about it this way, but uh, the shepherds, remember, that's just the story right before, the shepherds symbolize the average person in their time. That first, the angels come to the, the average people on the street, and, and they come and see Jesus. And here we have Simeon, and he represents the testimony of a wise elder who's been walking with God for a long time. And he's been walking with God, and, and it says he, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, which continues to come up uh, in the gospel. And that means that, that the nation of Israel and the people living in Jerusalem are living under the impress, oppression of the Roman Empire, and they're told that someday they will be free, that someday they will have a new king, and he will be like David in, in some way. David... Uh, the great king of the Old Testament, and he will free them, and, and this Messiah, this uh, anointed one, will come, and he will be their leader. So they're waiting for this. And Simeon uh, has been told that he will not die until he lays eyes on this Messiah. And I wonder if he expected a baby. 
right? Because he does not seem like the kind of king, <laughs> especially at this moment, that, that you, would, uh, you would think is going to throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire. I mean, so much so that Simeon can hold him in his own arms. Right? And yet, this is the Messiah, the one that is supposed to lift up the entire nation. The one that is supposed to bring them all uh, freedom. Simeon so moved, uh, he actually begins, begins to sing. In, in my translation, it says, uh, he praised God saying, and then it kind of has it broken out into a different bracket. That's actually a song that, that Simeon begins to sing, and it's the third song here in the Gospel of Luke. First, Mary hears uh, who she's going to be, and she sings a song. Uh, Zechariah later uh, sings a song, and here we have the third song as Simeon uh, sings about who this Jesus is that has come. That he's going to be a living light. That he's going to bring hope. We're told that Simeon had the Holy Spirit on him. Which is pretty amazing because he's the first person in 400 years that we're told is, I mean, that, that's kind of the language of what it means to be a prophet. In the Old Testament, you have the Holy Spirit on you, that God is working through you. And he kind of comes out of nowhere. And, and he's been told, uh, you know, these special things, and he sings his song, and this is what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And then he goes on and he blesses the child and, and he continues to speak and he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Speaking to Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So Simeon, with, with the Holy Spirit on him, sees this Jesus, but he knows that this is not going to be an easy road ahead. And that, that's really what he starts to talk about. He talks about how this is, this is going to be great for all people. Speaking of the Gentiles and, and the, people, the Jewish people together, that means all people. So this, this Jesus is going to be great. Uh, for everyone, but he's not going to be accepted by everyone. He's also going to be rejected. He will cause many people to turn to God, but he will also divide many brothers and sisters, parents and children. Whole empires will collapse and kingdoms will be divided and it's all in the name of Jesus. And Simeon knows that this will be particularly hard on Mary. As I mentioned earlier, by the end of the gospel, she will personally witness the death of Jesus on the cross. And we enter the third section here. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, 
Again, second prophet. <laughs> they just come out of nowhere. It's, it's like the Old Testament, and we had 400 years, and all of a sudden there's just two prophets that, that are at the temple. This is amazing. We're hearing about them for the first time. There was also a prophet, Anna, daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about this child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here we find Anna, and she said, she said to also be a prophet. Uh, we're told that, she's, that she was married to her husband for seven years, and now has been a widow till she's been 84. And it depends on your translation, because the, the Greek is a little unclear on whether she was a widow until she was 84, or she's now been a widow for 84 years. She's either 100-something, or she's 84. Either way, in biblical times, she's very old. Right? They, they don't, life expectancy is not that long. So uh, she is definitely, again, another elder of the community. She never left the temple and worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Anna also recognizes baby Jesus here as the Messiah, and she gives thanks to God. And she spoke about this child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So not only is she a prophet, now we have uh, maybe the first evangelist in the Bible that goes forward and speaks about, about Jesus to everyone. She leaves her encounter with Jesus the exact same way that the shepherds did in just the previous section. The shepherds encountered Jesus and they went away and they told the good news to everyone that they encountered, what God had done, what God was doing. And here Anna does the same thing. She encounters Jesus, and then she goes away and she tells everyone about him, about who he is. And then both of these people, Simeon and Anna, just disappear from the Gospels. This is all we read of them. Verses 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee in their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So after doing everything required of them, they, they left, they went back to Galilee. Jesus grew up, uh, he, he gets older, he gets strong, filled with wisdom and grace. It's kind of passing the time. Uh, by, if we uh, look at the next story that will be coming up, it's, it's a boy Jesus at the age of 12 that will come back to the temple and have a different experience, and we'll do that in a few weeks. The Gospel of Matthew tells two more uh, really important uh, events that Luke uh, just kind of skips over, um, and that is Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt, uh, spending time there, hearing in a dream that it's safe to come back after the death of King Herod uh, and being able to return. But that's in Matthew. So here in Luke, it just goes straight 
uh, to this. Then Jesus grows older, and all of a sudden he's 12. Not all of a sudden. It tells us he grew up. <laughs> but uh, but it, again, this is... Uh, they're, they're telling us each one of these on purpose. There's, there's a communication method going on here. This, this isn't a simple modern biography where they try to tell you every detail of a famous person and what happened in their lives. And if it was, it would be, I don't know, really poorly written because it just skips incredible amounts of time, right? So it's not even the goal. The goal is to communicate something to you even today, even living in today's world, what, what does this mean for us? And I think from this text, it's relatively simple. It means when we have an encounter with Jesus in our own lives, when something happens and we, un, we kind of can't deny it, we say certainly God was doing something there, whether it was with an interaction with someone else or, or something goes on or something, something medically happens, something that... That's just obvious. God is doing something in this moment that not only do we have an encounter with Jesus, but we also encounter a choice. We can either lean into that, we can uh, go towards him and, and embrace him, or we can flee from it. We can ignore it. We can just move on as if God didn't do anything. And the gospel is full of people making these choices. There's people who who are called to Jesus and they either draw close to him uh, or they push back and they resist him and, and they leave and they keep him at an arm's distance. And it's the same for us. We can repeatedly choose, maybe even in this year ahead, how we're going to draw closer to him. Are, are we going to look for what God is doing in the world? day by day, sometimes hour by hour, choosing to, to seek after him, choosing to say, I'm a follower of you. I'm, I'm not going to just go out on my own. I'm not going to try to do my own thing. I want to follow Christ. Or are we going to repeatedly resist him? Are we going to let ourselves be hardened like the Pharisees or, or other people in the Bible or like Simeon and Anna? Or are we going to recognize what God is doing in the world? There was a lot of people at the temple that day that didn't recognize what God was doing. And, and I'm kind of fearful of that in a way for, uh, for even my own life, but just churches in general. Are there a lot of people who don't see what God is doing even in their own lives? That, that God has been up to something. God has, has been wanting to form them, wanting to, to be deeper with them, and, and yet we're just oblivious. We pray almost every single service for God to open us up to him. Open our hearts to receive what you have. Open our minds to, uh, to, to think through this as we go into your word. But the hard part is, it's, it's, it's not about the relationship with God. Again, that's, that's firm. God's love for us doesn't change based on this, but... But our reaction and, and the way that we live into our world is somewhat our choice. We can choose how much we seek after God, how much, how much we want to actually like follow Jesus into like some of those hard things. Maybe, maybe he's going to tell you to love someone you really don't want to love. Maybe he's going to tell you to be patient with someone that you really don't want to be patient with. Maybe he's going to tell you that 
what, it, what it's going to look like. Maybe, maybe there's some activity in your life that you just need to do away with. That, that God is like, this is, this is a barrier between you and me, or this, or this attitude, or this way that, that you're viewing uh, the world, or whatever's going on, that this is, this is keeping you from following me. And it could keep you from following him for the whole next year. And there is some extent to where, where God you know, comes to us, but, but we're also called to follow him. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not just like one part of that equation. It, it, there's, there's a sense of where being a disciple means following after your teacher, walking in his footsteps, living a life that somehow reflects the life of Christ to those around us. So when it comes to those moments, the question becomes, how will we act? When Jesus has things that he calls us to do, how are we going to act? When there's people who are not easy to love, and he tells you to love them anyway, are you going to do it in the next year? When there's behaviors that, that he wants you to quit. When he has a specific calling on your life and he says, I, wa- I want your life to look this way. And then that will give me glory and that will give me honor. And, and I want you to follow me. You know, what will we do? I'll end with this, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me.